0: Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's children said, Amen. We don't see them a lot much anymore, but those iconic barber poles, right? There's still some around. I've seen them. They're not always rotating or working like they should, but you know the ones I'm talking about, they spin usually and show red, white, and blue, and the barber pole colors are actually a tradition, and it doesn't have anything to do with the colors in our flag, but it has to do with colors that go back to the Middle Ages. Back then, people went to the barbershop for more than just a haircut. They looked towards barbers to perform medical procedures, including bloodletting. Bloodletting was a procedure of choice for a range of illnesses. You could come in for a sore throat and have your blood leaded, or come in for the plague and have your blood leaded, all in an attempt to heal the sick. They'd simply cut open a vein and allow the blood to come out. <laughs> Not really a good way to do that. Now we know that. <laughs> but on the barber pole, the red represents blood. The white symbolizes the bandages, and the blue is always symbolization of the color of veins. According to the history website, barbers and surgeons, believe it or not, were part of the same trade guild until 1745. And it wasn't until the 1800s that bloodletting fell out of favor with the medical community. Today, they're still bleeding in barbershops, but usually it's completely accidental at this point. People will try to just about anything as they search for healing and wholeness. As we hear from Hebrews today, we're reminded that in the temple of Jerusalem, people hoped that the blood of bulls and goats would take away their sin, relieve them of their guilty conscience, and they could feel free once more. But those sacrifices didn't work. We hear again in Hebrews, every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. There had to be a better way. Sacrifices of bulls and goats are no better for forgiveness than bloodletting is for sore throats. And thankfully Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. Giving his own body and blood on the cross to bring us forgiveness and new life. Eugene Peterson's version of the Bible called The Message reads that very beginning of Hebrews this way. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sin, and that was it. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. We need this, don't we? As imperfect people, we can be perfected only by a perfect sacrifice offered by a perfect person. Jesus has made that sacrifice for you and I. His offering is a huge improvement, obviously, over the bulls and the goats of the the temple priests and a greater advancement than that of modern medicine over bloodletting. The blood of Christ is a perfect sacrifice, one that removes any need for any temple sacrifices. It's such an enormous gift that we should probably put barber poles outside of our church doors, right? So people can see the red, white, and blue and be reminded of who we are, the red with Christ, the white with God, and the blue with the Holy Spirit. We can be reminding people of what Jesus did. We hear again, therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, we can walk right past that barber pole, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Confidence to enter the sanctuary. A a true heart, full assurance of our faith. Hearts sprinkled clean. Bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews clearly is talking about a spiritual makeover all made possible because of Jesus. Jesus. Every church should be a place where people experience that kind of renewal. Since Jesus has done the bloodletting for us, we receive forgiveness of sin and healing in body and mind and in spirit. And everything we do together, we should, as Paul says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. In the version that Dan read, it said spur. In what I read, it said provoked. This is the mission of the church, holding fast to our confession of hope, provoking, spurring one another on, meeting together, encouraging one another, But unfortunately, we in the church don't always get the job done. So the fact is, barbershops are actually stepping up. Barbershops are stepping up. One particular barber-based program is called the Confess Project. It's based in Little Rock, Arkansas. The program's bringing mental health back to black men through the barbershops. This nonprofit trains barbers throughout the South and the Midwest. It, it trains them to create a space where men and boys can to talk freely about what's going on in their lives, how they're feeling. These barbers become mental health advocates, if you will, directing the folks that come into local mental health resources if needed. In 2020, the nonprofit expanded to 150 advocates across 14 states. And it partnered with the razor blade maker Gillette to expand its reach. I like the name of that ministry, the the Confess Project. As Paul said, the confess, hold fast to our confession of our hope. I mean, if you think about it, that Confess Project is an excellent description of what we as the church should be doing holding fast to that confession of hope, talking freely about our deepest concerns, provoking one another to love and good deeds, meeting together, encouraging one another. There's another great example I read about a community health program in Maryland. It's called HAIR. That stands for Health Advocates in Reach and Research. In this project, barbers are assisting with health screenings, including mental health ones. Their focus has become building connections in communities where people may be reluctant to seek help. Michael Brown, who participates in this project as a barber, says, you're not just a barber, you're a marriage counselor and any number of other things. If you have good information to give to the public, this is a perfect platform to do it. Brown cuts hair in a shop with a growing list of of customers and he says, African-American men... We don't tend to go to the doctor until our arm is all the way off on the floor. But he wants to help men to seek out regular checkups. So yes, we as the Christian community should be a a confessed project, a place where people can talk freely about their struggles, be assured of the forgiveness Christ offers, and receive guidance and encouragement, even for mental health resources if needed. Like the local barbershop, we are on the front lines of the struggle for mental, emotional, and spiritual health. We shouldn't wait for people to fall apart before we intervene. The Confess Project. Maybe maybe it's time for us to join that kind of a movement. The letter to the Hebrews gives us a little bit of a blueprint, an idea of how we can do this. We need to encourage people to confess their sins. And receive that gift of forgiveness. Since Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for our sins. We do this when we come to worship. When we say a prayer of confession together. We do it in small groups. Where we admit that we have wandered from God's path. One of the treasured and historic prayers of the Methodist church. You've probably read or said before. And let me read it to you now. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. In other words, Lord, we've sinned. Forgive us. And again, Christ offered that sacrifice for those sins, he's taken our guilt on himself and died to bring us that forgiveness, but more importantly, new life. And all we have to do is trust him and accept the gift that he offers. One pastor shared a story from his childhood to, to illustrate this. He said, one of the pleasures of summer was swimming at the lake, he wrote. After a long swim, it was fun to flop on a raft, forget everything, and drift into the hot sun. But you know what happens, right? After lying there on the raft for a while, you fall asleep. You suddenly wake up, you're in a panic, you have no idea where you are. You've drifted too far from the shore. We know how that feels, right? Drifting too far, going too far away. Suddenly discovered we've we've drifted far from who we were. Our morals, our aspirations. Far from where we know we need to be. Unfortunately, Jesus is available to help us. He forgives us. He turns us around. That's what repentance is. And he helps us get back to the shore of living life with him. He does this because he knows us. He knows us intimately. He came in human form. Divine and human together. He's able to sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses, our wants, our needs. And he knows Our need to be saved. The fact is faithful Christian living is not about trying harder. It's about trusting Jesus more. Hebrew goes on to share that we should provoke one another to love and good deeds. I read the the version that has spur, but there was something about the word provoke that struck me when I read it. We need the support of other people to live a faithful Christian life. So Hebrews challenges us with that word, provoke. To provoke one another, normally that's a pretty negative thing, often describing an action that might cause somebody anger or resentment, but here it means to stir a person to go into action. And I think that's why that translation reads that way, provoke one another. Spurn someone on to action, to to love, to do good deeds. Like the barbers of the Confess Project, we should provoke each other to get regular checkups. Provoke each other to seek counseling when troubles are, are really getting to us. Provoke each other to feed the hungry, shelter the homeless. Provoke each other to welcome a stranger, mentor a teen, or participate in some mission project. There's nothing negative about provoking one another if it is to greater love and good deeds. Lastly, it says we need to meet together in ways that involve encouraging one another. These gatherings obviously include our services of worship, small group studies, youth meetings, mission teams, musical groups, men's groups, women's groups, all the small groups. The point is that we meet together as a faith community, in ways that we can encourage one another. Remember how discouraging it was when we first started out with the pandemic and you had to be quarantined at home? You weren't able to attend in-person worship or any kind of gatherings of any kind. And I know that online meetings and online worship weren't really good, but they were better than nothing. But certainly that none of it was nearly as uplifting as an opportunity to see each person face to face. The Greek word for church is ecclesia. It means assembly or congregation. It should be a reminder to us that gathering, assembling, is an essential part of the life of the church. Especially when we meet together in ways that are encouraging to one another. Dane Ortland, who writes online blog wrote an article he called Encourage One Another, and part of it reads this way. Our words to one another about one another not only describe reality, they also create reality. Saying you idiot does not simply assess what is objectively true to the one speaking those words. It also produces in the one they're spoken to. It produces death and darkness. Not only do our words reveal what is true of us, they also generate reality for the people we're talking to. Specifically, our words are either death-bringing or life-giving. They're either depleting or nourishing, draining or filling. He continues by saying, all day long, words are flowing out of us, passing another and saying hello in the hallway or at the grocery store, chatting over lunch, greeting our spouse at the end of the day, tucking a child in with a good goodnight story, speaking with a salesperson at Best Buy, talking on the phone while you're driving. We all use words, but we also use words without using our voices. Emails, tweets, Facebook comments, handwritten notes stuck on the fridge. Even the article he's writing, he says, I'm using words. And he asks the question, are they bringing life? He finishes by saying, in the hurricane of words that make up any given day, how do we walk in wisdom such that our words inject sanity, calm, and life rather than destruction? So while we might be able to picture a Barbara pole and tell people what the colors mean as it hangs outside our church, we need to be continually remembered that we are part of a confessing project a project in which we trust the Lord to forgive us, we provoke one another to love and do good, and we meet together in ways that are encouraging to one another. And thankfully, you didn't have to come in today and have your regular bloodletting before worship. But the question for us today is, how can we, this week, let all that you do, and more importantly, all that you say, confess who you are, whose you are, And speak life-giving words to everyone you meet. How can we do that? How can we hold fast to our confession of hope? Encourage others. Use words that are life-giving, not destroying. To lift people up, not push them down. How do we offer that hope that we have to the people around us? Amen.